Alright, alright, alright. It's Friday. Um, I hope that uh, everyone's been having a decent week so far. A little, uh, little drama today in the market. Um, Trump's been tweeting again and people are having the normal reaction and kind of freaking out. Um, you know, obviously ex- excessively so. You know, I don't, I don't think the tariff deals. I, so, the the level of the tariffs right now, and I just I'll put a video on the blog about it. This economist did this great piece on it, um, and I'll put it in the podcast episode since I'm talking about it now that you guys can um, just watch the link. Now you're talking tariffs on, you know, even it's twenty five to thirty percent tariffs. And 300 billions of goods and services and a 14 trillion dollar economy the the actual end cost to the u.s consumer is negligible at best um and even at those tariff levels with the devaluation of the one the effective tariff rates have been cut by 30 40 percent already uh because the value of the one has gone down so you know and then, you know, China obviously responded with tariffs on $75 billion worth of goods, which again, and while a big number in the grand scheme, the amount of trade that goes out into the nations is, again, it's an insignificant event. Um, but the problem with tariffs is people don't know when it's going to end. So I guess that's the biggest scares. As of right now, the tariffs have had little or no effect. On the consumer, the U.S. economy still growing fine. You know everything we follow still going good. Employment gains are still strong. You know there's no mortgage delinquencies are falling considerably still. You know GDP is still growing over two percent. Market still rising. It's been a little rocky, but it's not like it's gone for down twenty percent. I think it's what just off the all-time highs. Um, you know there are pockets of weakness, but that's always true. So I think you'd have to you'd have to fudge some numbers to say that the U.S. economy is currently being negatively infect, affected by the tariffs because there are really no economic indicators that are monetary based that are showing weakness. Now there are. Sentiment-based indicators that are. Now, you've seen bond yields kind of come down a lot. Um, But that's sentiment, and that can change just as fast in the other direction. And, you know, we've posted a lot on the blog about the Treasury rates and why they're so low, and I think that general thought is finally becoming to start become mainstream now. Is that because it's the only place you can get yield. You have negative government bond yields all over the world, or... Almost zero percent. The U.S. is the only place you can buy a government bond and get any yield. So foreign money is flooding into the U.S. to buy these bonds, which is driving down the rates. The rates aren't going down because people are scared of a recession. And all this inverted yield talk, I think, as of right now, is is just that. Rates are rates are acting oddly and peculiar. Because foreign money is flooding into the market. 
and that's that's become improving and people more people are talking about that now and it's something that we've been saying here for six eight months um and i i think that our interest rates going down in the public markets are more of an effect of what's happening in foreign countries um versus what's happening here so um just a quick talk about that and then i just mention it because of obviously it's the news of the day it seems to be lately on Fridays we have weird things happening in the market um, because of tweets or news or whatever. So, um, and it, you know, it's still summer. Volumes lower than normal as usual, and it gets a little easier for the market. The market's always a little more erratic in the summer. So, you know, I'm as of right now, I'm not concerned. But if these tariffs keep going, and next it's a hundred billion, and next it's you know. We're going to do another $800 billion worth. And then you start getting into some worrisome situations. But um, at, at where we stand now, um, I'm not overly concerned about the effects of them. All right, so questions. Um, Bank of America again. Um, <laughs> I'm asking about Bank of America again. Do you have thoughts on financial stocks in general about how they can't seem to gain in an economy like we have? Which leads to the next question, what happens in general to all the financials when an actual recession happens, instead of just talking about one every day on CNBC. Thoughts what BAC, BAC share price would be if they were not buying back $2.5 billion in stock every quarter. Are investors, analysts missing the buyback at these share prices? And if BAC fulfills this entire buyback, they will, they will take a billion shares out. Will there be a day when BAC trades at 13 to 15 times earnings and 2.5, two times tangible book. Okay, so lots of questions. So I think the main issue, main issue right now is when interest rates fall, the financials tend to follow it. And the simple reason is that they get, their net interest margin gets crushed. And when rates are going up, it's basically free money for them. Money just comes pouring in. Um, and, you know, profits are, are hampered when rates go down like they have. And they've gone down kind of dramatically. So, but that being said, Bank of America for the last year or so has pretty much traded in this 26 to 31 30 dollar range you know, it's been a little bit above maybe a little below once or twice but it's generally been in this range from 26 to 31 bucks i mean that's up from i think ten dollars in 2006 right um but it's it's been in this range and I think it's probably going to stay in this range and continue paying out this dividend, which will increase every year, and the buybacks will increase. And, you know, it's, if, if, if your company's buying back $8 billion of stock a year, it's, it's not a bad thing for this share price to kind of sit somewhere flat for a year. I mean, it's, everyone always wants their stock to go up all the time, every day. But sometimes if a company is really aggressive in a buyback, if the stock price stays flat or falls, down the road, that's more helpful. You know, I mean, put it this way. Let's say you buy a stock and you make, you, you make 50% on it in three years. But the first few years, you're down 10%. But the company's buying back stock, buying back stock. They, they do some, some actions, they cut some costs, and all of a sudden now earnings surge. Sentiment changes on the stock, and boom, it, it, it jumps 40 50% in a year. Does it really matter if it goes up 
10, 12% every year or does 40% a year. And what happens is when these, these companies have these huge buybacks and the stock really doesn't go anywhere, that's what happens. It like coils, right? So, I mean, I think that's what's going to happen. And obviously, if they weren't buying the shares back, you know, like they have in the last four or five years, um, the stock price would be lower. But that's really because of Dodd-Frank. There's really nothing else they can do with it, right? They can't. Usually what banks would have done is what? They would have bought another bank, right? They would have bought earnings. They would, you know, they would have bought loans, bought earnings. But the big banks can't make any more acquisitions, so that's out. Lending is still restricted in a lot of ways. And yes, they're growing their lending quarter over quarter, but the housing lending is nowhere where it used to be. Even if, I'm, I'm talking even before the bubble. You know, we need about 1.5 million homes a year. We're well under that for new homes. Um, and that's, you know, there's various reasons for that. Um, lending standards are tougher. You know, developers aren't building spec homes anymore. You know, they're, they're building homes as they're sold. Um, so you don't have you know, the land and acquisition sales that lenders used to go out and get loans for all these tracts of land and build spec homes and sell them. That market's pretty much dried up. Yeah, it's there, but it's, it's, it's a fraction of what it used to be. So the only real, that's, they have all this money sitting around. So what can they do with it? The only thing they can really do is buy back stock and increase dividends. And, you know, that's, you kind of got to play the hand you're dealt and that's what they're doing right now. I mean, I don't, you know, we, we bought Bank of America, you know, between five and seven bucks way back. And, you know, I was paying a penny dividend now. Um, it's, it's much higher now. So if you look at it, you know, even that dividend, you know, it's a, it's a 2.6 percent dividend yield now. I think it's like 70 cents or something like that a year. I mean, that's almost 12% on our initial investment every year, just sitting here collecting the dividends, which, you know, I'm not going to complain about. I'm more than happy to sit here and collect that um, and wait for the issue. I mean, if they're buying back a billion shares a year because they have all this extra cash, it's going to be positively affect the stock price at some point. You know, so, you know, what happens to the financials in a recession? Well, I mean, what normally happens? You know, they'll go down a little bit, um, but they'll still be buying back a billion dollars of stock a year. And if we did have a recession and if it did go down into the, the teens again or even the mid, mid to low teens, I'd be happy to buy even more knowing that's going to come way up on the other side because they'll still be buying back a boatload of shares at lower prices. And that's, that's how it works. I mean, you know, you look at Buffett with Wells Fargo and, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs and every time there's weakness in these bank stocks, he buys more. And, you know, he's, he's, he's done all right for himself. So that's, I mean, that's how I think about Bank of America. It's, it's, it's a, it's not gonna, it's, you know, it's going to be a slog for a little while, but I think it's going to come out on the other side. It's very good. And, you know, I, I'm not inclined to, 
pay a boatload of capital gains when I'm, you know, I'm still making, depending on what you bought it at, 10% a year on your, on your 10 to 12% a year on your dividend, on your purchase price. I mean, that's, I'm fine with making 10% a year on a stock. And if it goes up in value in the price, which I'm sure it will, we make even more. So, you know, uh, that, that's all right for me. Um, will there be a day it trades at 13, 10, 13, 15 earnings and two times tangible buck? So, I mean, if they make significant, they just made a lot of significant changes to the Volcker rule, um, which I think is going to increase trading at the banks. So that'll generate some more income. You know, if you get rates rising, I mean, who knows? We may be in a permanently low rate environment, right? We don't really know. You know, and, and I'm sure you could find 50 people that say yes, 50 people that say no. Um, in which case, that's going to hamper net interest margins and there'll be other effects of that. But, you know, the, the banks will find other ways to make money. Um, you know, so I mean, I don't, I, it's hard to make predictions like that. Especially when um, the things are kind of where they are now with interest rates globally and in the U.S. even. Um, it's hard to make a prediction like that because you would need some benefit from net interest income to generate the kind of cash. You know, but again, the flip side is if they're still, again, go back to the buyback. If they're still buy, buy, buying back that much stock every single year, eventually it's going to trade at a nice multiple because there's not going to be that many damn shares left. There just won't be. Um, I don't, I'm looking real quick. I don't see um, how many shares I have outstanding right now, but um, I don't know. Uh, it, it'll work. Okay. Um, let me see. Hold on. I lost my questions. I got him. You comment on Aquin and what went wrong. So OCN. So we bought Aquin in May of 2013, like 40 bucks. They're essentially a mortgage servicer. Uh, they would buy mortgage servicing right from the big banks and service the loans. And they had, you know, out to source. They had a couple sister companies underneath them. And it was a, a, a very good business at the time. You know, the banks weren't, were kind of raw about servicing loans afterwards. And, you know, it's, they were looking to shed costs and get leaner, and they had been paying lots of fines. They were happy to offboard these loans. All the major banks were in business with them to Aquin. Um, Aquin, what happened to Aquin is Aquin grew too fast. And in the hyper-regulatory regime we were in post the housing crisis, they had some problems. They had some missteps. A um, couple of companies they acquired uh, made some mistakes in their past uh, that came back to haunt them. And some of the integrations didn't go smoothly. There were mistakes. And we were, the reason the banks were getting out of the servicing end of it, because there was zero tolerance because of some of the abuses in the housing crisis uh, for any error on the servicers. Um, so Aquan got in trouble. There were some fines and investigations. And then finally, you know, we, we bought it at like 40 and the stock was in the, you know, it fell like into the 30s, high 20s. And then Benjamin Lasky got involved with the um, New York State Department of Financial Services. And in December of 14, he basically halted them from acquiring any more service rights until he finished an investigation and they worked through their problems. And the stock, I think, dropped about 20, 25% in two days. Um, and we sold it, 
uh, uh, fourteen dollars and change. I think. I think now it's at like a buck eighty-three, uh, buck eighty. It's under two bucks a share. It has been for some time. Um, so doing a post, it's hard. It's kind of hard to you know because Lasky was investing in them for a while and really didn't give any hint that he was going to stop it from acquiring mortgage and servicing rights. So what happened was if the company couldn't acquire any more mortgage servicing rights, their growth was over. Right? They're just basically winding down their book of business because if if you can't if you can't acquire any more mortgage servicing rights as as loans are paid off you can't replace that loan so you your your book of business just dwindles slowly uh, or depending on how fast the loans are repaid it does fast so that was sort of like you know um you know it's like telling apple you can't sell any more iphones to any new customers and it's it was you know it was harsh and the stock collapsed and then and, you know i don't I don't think there was any way really to predict he was going to do that. Um, I think if you're if we're going back and there were clues that they had problems, and I think the biggest takeaway should have been so if they've acquired all these companies the last three years and they're they're slowly finding mistakes in a significant number of these companies, then we should probably get out of the stock. Because, you know, this is kind of like this. So this would be the lesson for like GE, right? If, the, if they're finding problems and accounting problems and you keep hearing about accounting problems, you know, I'm not a forensic accountant. Not many people are. So why sit in that when it could be wrong? It could be a bombshell to go off and significantly affect the, the company. And then, you know, by default, the stock price. Why sit there? Um thinking the odds of it happening aren't going to happen or whatever. Why not just play it safe and get out? So that's what we did with GE. Um, you know, on the flip side of it, we did have Bank of America that was in a similar situation, being sued by everybody, but that worked out. Um, you know, um, uh, GGP was being sued by, you know, lenders. They worked out fine. American Capital, same thing. We've had several of these that have worked out. The difference, I think, in this one was that you know, Bank of America was not going to be shut down. American Capital was not going to be shut down. And and um, GGP, while it was in bankruptcy, the way the loans were structured, the banks couldn't shut them down. So there was more clarity in those three investments than in Aquin, um, who was still integrating businesses that they had recently acquired. And I'm not even sure they understood what was going on in some of these servicers they acquired. And they kind of paid the price for the misdeeds of others. And well, that's what, you know what, that's what happens when you acquire a company, right? And you look at uh, Bank of America and they acquired Countrywide. You, you acquire the good and you acquire the bad. Um, so I think that's the biggest lesson from Aquin is that if things are really opaque and you can't, you can't quantify a potential downside because you can't figure out what, if the potential downside is legit or not, you know what, there's a, there's a million stocks to go by, right? Why, why stay in that? Um, if you can't have a reasonable expectation of, you know, the problems being solvable. Um, you know, I think with Bank of America, we, we did the research and found out, you know, that, you know, the $100 million lawsuit, $100 billion lawsuit, uh, they tip, in the financial world, they typically take five years, five to seven years to settle, and they settle for about 2% of the requested amount. So we did all the math and said, well, even if they lose all these lawsuits and they never go to trial, I mean, there's, there's no way Moody's is, you know, there's no way Bank of America is going to be sued by Fannie Mae 
and there's going to get a jury of 12 people going to understand what the hell they're talking about. Um, so they always settle, and that's what they settle for. And we did the math, and I was like, okay, so even if, even if Bank of America has to settle all these at egregious terms of 4% of the claim balance instead of 2%, um, which they did on a lot of them because of the emotion at the time, uh, they still were fine. And then, you know, it worked out perfect. So um, I noticed in HAC's form four releases or management in just six months, restricted stock options that would equal over 500000 to over $1 million per employee if today's stock raises. Does this seem excessive compensation over a short period of time? I mean, no, those are annual uh, paid out, you know, based on people's employment dates, based on performance for their job. And they are restricted options. There's nothing they can do with them. And if the company doesn't perform, they're basically worthless, right? So, you know, it's in order for that to to be good, the company has to do good. If the company doesn't do well and they don't do well um, or they're fired, you know, if they're fired because they suck at their job, those options don't automatically vest and all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's a lot of money if the stock does really well. So... I don't have a problem with it because if the stock does well, we all do. And it's not, you know, it's $500,000 is not in today's corporate world for a company with a market cap of, what are they at, $6 billion, $5.5, 6000000000 It's not overly excessive. I mean, you may think it is a lot of money, but in, in the world that they're operating in and the, the jobs they have, you know, vice presidents and president of this division, that's not, you know, it's not excessive. Um, GSEs. So I got a couple of questions on the GSEs. I'm just going to, um, I'm not even going to read them. I'm going to put them on the, <clears throat> um, on the sheet, of course, but I'm just going to go over. It's been an interesting week with the GSEs and there's been a few things that have happened that a lot of people aren't really talking about, um, that I think at least give me, uh, the impression that things are going to happen sooner rather than later. And the first one is, so obviously we heard the news about the plan being essentially done, right? So it came out last week that according to Treasury, remember Layton, Donald Layton, the former CEO, said that in June when he left, he had a meeting with Treasury and talking about GSC reform. And they, GSC, they said basically the GSC reform is essentially done, um, that they weren't going to completely redo the GSCs. They were going to fix the things that, cause some of the abuses that caused them to get in trouble and they could do all that administratively. They don't have to redo the charge or anything like that. Um, and that had basically been done and that the plan we found out this week, um, assuming it's true is from several sources is basically in the white house, um, on Cudlow's desk waiting to be signed off on and, and they can just announce it and get going. Um, concurrent with that this week, I'm pretty sure it was Fitch rating agency came out, Maybe it was last week. It might have been the end of last week. Came out and said that GSC reform would not be a credit negative event for the GSEs. And one of the main reasons they gave is because the GSEs loan performance and things like that has been very good because of the changes they've made, i.e. the restructuring of the companies and how they do business or reforming the companies and how they do business. That because of what Fitch... Um, viewed as the positive results of that, that IPOing them and recapping and releasing them would not be a credit negative event. Now, what's interesting about that is that one would have to think, for Fitch to say that, 
one would have to think Fitch is someone in Fitch has probably been briefed on the plan. Right? I mean, how can you say recap and release is not going to be a credit negative event for the GSEs if you have no idea what the recap is going to look like? Unless you're just going to come out and say, well, because they did it this way, now it is. Right? But if you flip it and put it in the government's point of view, if the government wants to raise money, they, you know, they, they could sit down with the rating agency and say, this is what we're doing, this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to raise the money. The rating agencies come out ahead of time and say, this is not a credit negative event. And they back that view when the plan's released. That gives investors safety and security and helps raise the money, right? You know, there's nothing like, you know, <clears throat> the risk is you come out with your reform plan and Fitch and Moody's downgrade the GSEs. I mean, that would be horrible. So it makes sense to go to them first before the plan. Because this is a plan. There might be some small changes, but this is basically what it's going to be. And they come out ahead of time and say it's not going to be a problem. And then they probably reiterate that stance when they announce the plan. The other interesting thing that happened is... Sheila Blair joined the Fannie Mae Board of Directors. Now, for those who don't know Sheila Blair, she was at the FDIC um, during the, the crisis. And she got lots of credit. Um, I think it was probably after the fact, uh, or maybe late after things started falling apart, as being someone who at the FDIC was pounding the table about the CDOs and the derivatives and the synthetic CDOs out there in this black market that no one was valuing and that were a ticking time bomb on the banks. And she was repeatedly warning about this, warning about this, warning about this. And of course, everyone ignored her. And of course, we know what happened. So she immediately became, you know, the go-to person as far as safety of insurance companies and banks and their liquidity and what's out there and things like that. So adding her on the Fannie Mae Board of Directors, assuming that the Board of Directors is going to sign off on the recap and release plan, gives the plan a hell of a lot more credibility. Because they're going to say, you know, Sheila Blair and the Board of Directors said, this is a great plan. These institutions will be fully funded. They'll be safe. We'll avoid another crisis. We'll take them off the hook of the taxpayer. Blah, 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 blah. And that's, you know, Sheila Blair is Sheila Blair. And she has a lot of, um, oh, what's the right word I'm looking for here? Uh, she has a lot of credibility. So, and those two events happen with the days of each other. I think I put on the blog, Sheila Blair uh, was announced, I don't know, uh, maybe Tuesday this week. And I think it was Monday this week or Friday last week, Fish came out. You know, things are happening rapid fire that give validity and give credence to whatever plan is going to be put out. And no one's denying, unlike past um, news articles, especially the ones on Bloomberg where, you know, Treasury or FHFA have come out and basically immediately disputed their reports. Um, uh, that didn't happen this time. Um, you know, of course, Bloomberg had a negative spin on it, said it could be years before they recapitalize the shareholders see any gains, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, that's, they're not going to completely go from this is dead, never happening to it's going to happen and shows are going to make money in, 
in what what's it been five weeks since the last article so they're not going to give us that um and i think we all kind of expected and knew that but um there's been no rebuttal that the plan is at the white house so you know i honestly nothing nothing's going to happen today it might be next month or the next i still in my gut think that um uh it's going to be on a friday um if they're saying it could be sent out in december i mean i'm sorry september or october i mean your your best ones that make sense you know it makes sense to put it out next friday right Markets closed on Monday. Give everybody a nice long three-day weekend to digest it. You don't have many panic reactions in mortgage markets. Um, everyone can just calm themselves down until Monday morning. Um, I think that's a strategic time to to do it. Um, you know, or I mean, again, but this, it's got to be reviewed and signed off on before they do it. But uh, if you're looking to do it on a weekend when you know, you give people as much time as humanly possible to debate it and tear it apart and tear into it and go through it. A nice long three-day 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 weekend is the way to go. So, um, can you please comment on the timeline of the plan? I don't know the timeline. Um, the facts of the plan release on the preferred to comment. Again, that all depends on what the plan is. So it's you know I can't predict what's going to happen to the common stock and the preferred stock. Um, I do think the preferred stock is a safer play. I do think if the common stock retains value, like I said, it would that we should get par on our stock. Um, now I don't think this. I don't think the the fifty dollar preferreds or the twenty dollar preferreds are going to go to twenty five and fifty overnight um, because there's always time arbitrage, right? They could announce the plan and they want to do the IPO in you know March or April next year, and I'm just throwing dates out, so don't hold me to the date. You know, there's still that time period where it could come apart. So I don't see the preferreds going to par right away, but I see them significantly higher than the eighteen to twenty dollars they are now for the fifty dollar preferreds. You know, I would I would think thirty five to forty bucks a share would be reasonable. It still gives you know twenty percent upside um, and a twenty percent cushion in case it doesn't happen. Uh, but you know, I. I don't think that's unreasonable. But, and again, this is all predicated on, you know, shareholders being treated like shareholders should be treated in a situation like this. So, um, is a recession coming? I, I think I kind of answered that earlier. I don't, nothing I follow is starting to roll over, starting to indicate a recession, starting to, you know, we're not, you know, auto sales aren't, you know, falling. They're the volatile from month to month, but that's normal. We have low energy prices. We have low unemployment. We have, you know, we're not seeing employment pick up, unemployment pick up. We're not seeing unemployment rise. We're not seeing housing defaults rise. We're not seeing auto defaults rise. You know, things are still just chugging along. Um, I don't, I don't want to go through it all again, but you know, that's, that's where I'm at with it. So, um, you mentioned that you read Value Line in the news regularly. How do you filter out good ideas quickly? Do you have a checklist or a few items that you really focus on to help? quickly find the possible winners how long does it take you to come up with one good idea how many rocks do you have to turn over in order to find a little abnormalities i've tried to do the same thing myself but most of the time i end up with no idea after lots of readings very frustrated i mean 
<coughs> I well, as far as the last sentence go, it's that's that's the whole basis of of investing, right? I mean, you have I don't know how many companies you can buy stocks in a million around the world, and you're looking for what fifteen to invest in, maybe. That's gonna require a lot of work, and it's not. I, I don't view it as frustrating. It's it, you don't need you don't need twenty or thirty good ideas. You don't even need fifteen. You need ten good ideas. Ten of your best ideas, right? And then in order for you to sell something, you have to find another idea that's better than one of the ones you already have. You know, that's a pretty simple rule. You know, so whether it's 10 or 15 or 20 stocks, whatever you're holding, and the number of stocks I hold just basically is a function of what's out there and, and where we are and what's going on. There's always value out there. There always is. It's just you just got to find it. And, you know, if you could do a simple screen for it and come up with the 10 best value ideas, then they wouldn't be value ideas because everyone would be into them, right? If everyone knew XYZ Company existed and was a great value and had a good outlook and whatever temporary problems it was going through was going to fix and there's great upside to it. If everyone knew that, they'd be in it. And by definition, it wouldn't be a value stock because everyone would be in it. The price would be where it is. So, you know, if I guess if you watch the financial news and you're looking for value, just listen to see what they're trashing every day. You know, what, what sectors are they telling you to stay away from? What things are they telling you not to buy? You know, what areas of the economy are they really down on and really negative on? Because obviously if they're negative on, I don't know, semiconductors, then semiconductor stocks will be down, right? The people on TV tend more to let market prices dictate their view than their view, you know, saying, no, this is a great stock. I want to get into it. It's down 40%. They typically say this is up 30%. We think it has more upside, so we're going to buy it. They tend more momentum than value on TV. That's just the way it is. Um, but you just take a contrarian viewpoint to them, and whatever they hate, I'm not saying buy it. I'm saying that's where you start digging, and you look for value there, and you go through the process. And uh, I know, uh, what's his name? Uh, Manish Pabrai, I think he pronounced his last name. He has this alleged checklist that he uses for stocks. And I don't particularly have a, um, a quote-unquote checklist because I think every company is a little different. Everything you're looking for in different companies are different. And when you invest primarily in companies that um, are going through some sort of short-term difficulty that difficulty is going to be different with every company. You know, like he never went into, uh, you know, if he, he, his checklist never turned up Bank of America, never turned up ACAST, never turned up GGP. So there's some things on that checklist, you know, maybe you know, is there legal troubles. Well, yeah, there are. So that, that's, that's going to get, eliminate that one. So th there's different situations with every investment. And I don't think a simple checklist works for everything. So I think you have to kind of take a more holistic approach and look at the entire company and figure out what's wrong with it and why people hate it and then try and disprove the thesis as to why they hate it, right? I mean, if you have a stock trading at 30 bucks and six months later it's down to eight, people hate it. People don't want to own it. People don't want to be on it. You know, your job is to figure out 
what is there you know take tesla for example you if you wanted to buy tesla at this level you'd have to sit here and say okay what's the bear case and that wouldn't be hard to find at all right it's all over the place and you sit down and say okay how is this wrong i got to disprove the bear case i got to disprove the negative voices and if i can't disprove them to my satisfaction then i want out i don't want anything to do with it because there's a decent chance they're right or partially right. And if they're partially right, the stock's going to keep going down, especially when you have a stock like Tesla that's trading at an insane valuation, you know? So, I mean, that's, that's kind of how I go through that. Um, as far as how long does it take, I mean, there's, you can look at the blog. There's been times I've had ideas come at me, boom, boom, boom. And there's been times it's been three or four months in between ideas. And I'm always looking. I mean, you always want to find that great investment. There aren't, there aren't too many days where I'm not reading something or going through something to try and find an idea or to try and find thoughts of, you know, of themes to invest in or things like that. So it's, it's a constant process. But I think if you, <clears throat> I think maybe the person asked the question, you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself to find something all the time. And if you're happy with your portfolio and it's doing well, you don't need to feel that kind of pressure to find something every time you look at a company. And you know what? So maybe, maybe a company's not great right now, but you know, it, six months from now, you see something on the news on it. And you're like, oh, I remember that. I looked into that six months ago. You look at it again, and maybe now it looks better for whatever reason, right? Maybe the price is still low, but the problems you thought they had are largely fixed, but the price of the stock hasn't reflected that yet. Because those problems being fixed haven't shown up in quarterly earnings yet. And that, that happens. So you're like, oh my God, I looked at it then. They had this problem. I didn't like it because of that, but they fixed it. So now I think the stock's worth much more. The price is still the same. So now it's a great buy. I mean, that, that stuff happens. But you don't, you know, I guess if you're, if you're down 30% in a year, there's pressure to find something new to save yourself. But, you know, if, if you're profitable and if you're up and, you know, don't compare yourself to other people because there's going to always be someone doing better than you. Always. I don't care how well you do. There's always someone who had, you know, the trade of the year and is kicking everyone's butt. And it's just so nothing you're going to be able to do about it. So don't don't do relative comparisons to other people because you just you just you're going to drive yourself insane. Um, but, you know, you don't have to find a stock every time. You don't have to find a stock every week or month or every couple months. Because when you find it, you're going to find it. But if you pressure yourself to find things, you're going to end up... Um, and I, I've, everyone has done this. Every single person has done this. If you pressure yourself to find something, because it's been a while since you found something new, and maybe something in your portfolio isn't doing that well, you want to sell it, you got cash laying around, you feel like you need to buy something, da-da-da-da-da. Um, you, you end up rationalizing purchase decisions and hurting yourself. So, well, maybe that problem's not that bad, or... They could probably fix that or, you know, yeah, I wish it was $10 cheaper, but, you know, it's still got upside from here, so I'll buy it. You tend to, it's human nature to do this. You tend to, you know, it's no different than when you you go to the store and you want to go spend 20 bucks for a shirt and walk out 50 bucks later because you got great deals on these other three shirts or pants or whatever the hell you bought. Um, it happens all the time and it's no different in, in that situation as with stocks. You, you pay a higher price for a stock that you wanted, or maybe it's a little more flawed than it should be. There's a little couple of the problems are maybe a little bigger than they are, but you kind of rationalize them away. 
and then you end up making a bad investment. So, <coughs> um, I think I think it was Buffett always says, you know, you don't need to be a genius to be a good investor. The right, um, oh, what does he say? You got to have the right um, temperament. Temperament's more important than intelligence in investing. He says because um, most people make mistakes. You know, they panic, they get out, they get stubborn, stay in too long, and everyone does it. He's done it himself. He's admitted he's done it himself in certain investments that he wish he never made. Um, uh, but it's it's completely true. So let me um, see how long I've been. Seems like I might have been, yeah, 40 minutes again. Wow, time goes by. Um, let me just check real quick, see if there's any late questions come in. Um I do not see any ones. I know last week I missed one. So if you did ask a question that I missed, um, don't be afraid to email it over. Um, it, it just happens with the number of emails a day that I miss one or whatever. Um, delete it by accident off my phone or whatever. Who knows? So, um, but I think that's it <clears throat> for this week. Um, I hope, uh, I hope everyone has a great weekend and a safe weekend. And if you're going on vacation, um, hope it's a great vacation and I hope um, everyone in your families are well. So, oh, oh, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. One thing. Um, I had mentioned two things about um, the new buy. I'm not done with it yet. I'm still going through it. So it'll be next week. And I had a bunch of people reach out about uh, investing in the private cannabis space. I had hoped to have materials for everyone this week, um, but I don't. I'll probably definitely have them by next week. I'll probably put them on the blog, so be on the lookout for it if it's something you're interested in. Um, it's not a company I run. I have no, um, I get no monetary benefit from it at all. Um, I just, I've invested in it, and it's just something else I want to share with you guys. For those people looking for this opportunity, don't know how to get into it, don't know who to trust into it. Um, I found a group of really high quality people uh, who I'm very excited to be investing alongside with. So I will put that on the blog and then you guys can all, um, if you want to reach out to me and talk to me about it, I'm more than happy to do that. I probably actually rather prefer to do that because if I, um, if I make an introduction to you, it will probably get you a faster response because they're being flooded with inquiries right now. Um, it'd probably be beneficial for you. So, um, but be on my guard for that and I'll talk about it again next week and I'll put it on the blog as soon as I'm ready. Uh, but I just don't have everything together for that yet. So. All right, guys, I hope everyone, again, great, safe weekend, and I will be back um, next Friday.